to a special five-part episode on the Simpsons Today. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, Inc. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across all industries. With its knowledge of effective compliance and ethics programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance programs, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this five-part series on the intricacies of suspension and disbarment, I'm joined by Rod Grandin. Rod is a managing director at Affiliated Monitors, and he's going to help us walk through what suspension and debarment is, but more importantly, why it needs to be studied, understood, and learned by the greater compliance community. We're going to take up five separate topics in this five-part series. Number one, what's the difference between criminal civil actions and suspension and debarment? Two, what's the actual difference between a suspension and a debarment? Three, what's the relationship to the FCPA and other matters to suspension and debarment. Four, what are factors considered as part of suspension and debarment present responsibility determination? And five, what are some of the remedies and responses under suspension and debarment? I know you'll find this fascinating series very useful for you as the compliance practitioner. This special five-part series on suspension and debarment is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for part three of my five-part exploration of suspension and debarment. During this exploration, I'm joined by Rod Grandin. Rod is the A Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors. Today, we're going to take up the topic of why does suspension and debarment matter to compliance? So, Rod, with that introduction, thank you for joining me today. All right. Thank you. Rod, um, as you know, many of my listeners are in the uh, compliance community. They may be in the anti-corruption compliance community. They may be in the anti-money laundering compliance community. They may be in the now data protection uh, compliance community. It could be a wide variety of compliance issues. And I wondered if you could maybe start with telling us what's the relationship between the United States anti-corruption law, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and your world of suspension and debarment? All right. Well, for starters, suspension debarment, and my approach is from the uh, procurement side of the rules. I've said in the earlier segments, there are two sets of rules that presently govern the U.S. government's approach to suspension debarment, the procurement rule and the common rule. Within the Department of Defense uh, and within the Department of Air Force, where I served as the suspending and debarring official, we worked under both, but primarily under the procurement rule. Um, and the, the, the thing to understand are the causes associated with suspension and debarment. Suspension and debarment, when you look at the rules, the procurement rule at 48 CFR, the Federal Acquisition Regulation, 
it very specifically talks about uh, the actions can be initiated for conviction, for indictment of, uh, when it comes to suspension, or conviction or civil judgment for commission of fraud or criminal offenses and the connection with obtaining, attempting to obtain, or performing a public contract or a violation of antitrust statutes or violation of, of crimes or offenses that reflect a lack of integrity, such as embezzlement, theft, forgery, so on and so forth. Uh, it can be for a fixing a label bearing a Made in America inscription, so on and so forth. Um, and as I mentioned in an earlier uh, podcast, when there is a, an indictment for suspension, you need no further evidence. When there is a conviction or a civil judgment in the context of a proposed debarment or debarment, you need no further evidence. In the absence of that, uh, of either the indictment and suspension or the conviction or civil judgment in, in the, uh, the uh, uh, varmint area, there are standards of evidence that come into play. And so uh, for suspension, it is adequate evidence. For, for debarment, it is preponderance of the evidence. But once you get outside the list of specific criminal uh, activity or, or specific statutory wrongs, um, actions can be taken for violation of terms of government contracts, for willful failure to perform contracts, for history of failure to perform, for violations of the drug-free workplace uh, requirements that are included in uh, federal contracts, for commission of an unfair trade practice, for delinquent federal taxes, and the list, uh, there's this fairly extensive list, but the most intriguing proposition under both suspension and proposed debarment is what is known as the subparagraph C, which generally provides, and I'm reading from the debarment rule, that a contractor or subcontractor may be debarred based on any other cause so serious or compelling a nature that it affects the present responsibility of the contractor or subcontractor. Um, as you can tell, that is some fairly broad language. So when we look at this in the context of corruption laws, U.S. corruption laws, we look at the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and we say, well, that doesn't necessarily, that usually involves bribery and bad record keeping associated with that activity in the context of uh, engagements with foreign officials. Activity that would generally fall outside the realm of a public contract or subcontract. That's entirely uh, an, an accurate observation, but what's critical to recognize here is that the standard definition for contractor, as used in the rule, does not require that the entity actually have a contract uh, in place. It's just simply that they may have a contract or may compete at some point for a contract, that they may become a contractor. So essentially, any business activity that provides goods or services that the federal government may be interested at some point in acquiring potentially could fall within the definition of contractor. So when we look to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, you know, uh, practically any business could fall within that definition of contractor. Again, I want to emphasize, it's not limited yet. These, these sanctions are not limited to contractors that have existing contracts, and they are not limited to misconduct that occurs in the context of a federal contract. In my experience, I have dealt with uh, several matters involving violations of 
the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, activity that was clearly outside the scope of a federal contract or subcontract, but where the conduct was was committed by a federal contractor. In fact, in my case, uh, very large federal contractors. So there is this very much a relationship between uh, this integrity notion that drives this concept of present responsibility and conduct that, that violates criminal laws, including the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And I think many in the, uh, in the practice area you know, get so focused on the criminal aspects that they lose the notion that there's very likely, uh, certainly within the Department of Defense, to be a coordination of remedies. And that coordination effort will not just be uh, in the context of whatever the Department of Justice does, but may very well fall to actions that can and may be taken by the suspending and debarring official. So uh, we've had uh, several uh, FCPA matters where that has been specifically addressed, and I don't think it, that part of it, Rod, really gets enough play, certainly in the FCPA compliance community. But I think there are other areas, uh, the other types of matters that suspension and debarment uh, officials uh, consider. I was wondering if you might be able to highlight some of those for us. Right. I touched on those briefly, but I'll go back and, and just illustrate, um, you know, some of the provisions in the regulation. Uh, again, anything in the context, any fraud or criminal offense in the context of obtaining, attempting to attain, forming a public contract or subcontract, that's clearly within the scope. Uh, antitrust statute violations, whether federal or state, embezzlement, theft, forgery, uh, bribery, as we've already discussed, falsification or destruction of records, false uh, statements, uh, tax evasion, uh, violating uh, basically any federal law. Remember, the notion here is one of present responsibility. Present responsibility is not defined anywhere in the regulatory structure. It is left to the discretion of the agency suspending an abhorrent official. And in most cases, that official is going to look back at, at one, is there a cause and then secondly, is there reason to be concerned about the integrity of that contractor? And that gets us into a fairly deep dive of the ethics and compliance environment uh, within that contractor's uh, business operations. So, Rod, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time. I've been visiting with uh, Rod Grandin, Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors, and we've been exploring why suspension and debarment matters and should matter to compliance. I hope you will join us again for our next episode. Rod, thank you very much. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode. This special five-part series on suspension and debarment is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.